Greetings and welcome to the Eat at Lou's podcast, a gustatory adventure in culinary delights. I am your host, Lisa Beisinger, also known as Lou. And in this podcast, I cook up recipes from the past and taste them while talking about the history and science of food. In this episode, I'll be talking about British World War II rations and making three recipes, chocolate truffles and Ohio pudding from Good Eating Suggestions for Wartime Dishes, and savory potato cakes with salmon from the book Eating for Victory. Both of these books are collections of recipes published in wartime Britain. This may seem like a rather decadent menu for World War II, but there's one thing that each of these items has in common, and that's potatoes. Yes, you heard me right. The base of every single recipe, including the chocolate truffles, is potatoes. Our first recipe is Ohio pudding since it needs to steam for three hours. This recipe calls for one cup of self-raising flour, one half cup of grated raw potato, one cup of grated carrot, one cup of any dried fruit. Traditionally, this recipe was made with currants and raisins, but since it's wartime, I suppose that they figured any fruit would do. I'm using raisins. This recipe also calls for a half cup of sugar, a pinch of salt, and a teaspoon of baking soda. So I'm just going to combine all of those ingredients. So I'm just gonna drop my self-raising flour and go and measure some more. There we go, cup of self-raising flour. There we go, all of my ingredients are now in the bowl and some of them are in the sink. So I just need to stir these ingredients together presumably until everything is coated with flour. The preparation for this recipe is rather easy. You just need to combine the ingredients and then steam them. The downside is it takes three hours to steam it. I, I, I did cut this recipe in half so that I wouldn't have too much of this lying around my apartment. After all, it is only me eating it. And that looks nicely combined. So I need to pack this into a bowl, get my hands in there. Next, I need to put an aluminum foil lid on my steaming bowl. Just like with the Colcannon, I'm using a double lid method to steam my Ohio pudding. For this, what I do is I take a piece of aluminum foil, lay it on top of the bowl that has the Ohio pudding in it, push the aluminum foil down against the pudding, and then where there's excess aluminum foil hanging down around the sides of the bowl. I roll that up to create a lip around the edge of the bowl. And then I place another piece of aluminum foil on and then tie a string below the lip so that it's nice and tight and double sealed. And then it's gonna go in the oven, in a 300 degree oven, in a bain-marie. In this case, I'm using a large Pyrex baking dish that has water in it. I was drawn to making Ohio pudding specifically because of the name. So I did a little research about Ohio pudding and I have no clue why it's called that aside from the fact that it's supposedly popular in Ohio. I've been living in Ohio for five years and I've never heard of it. So I'll just have to take their word for it. The earliest version of this recipe that I was able to find was from the Boston Cooking School cookbook by Fannie Merritt Farmer published in 1939. This recipe was mostly identical to the one in my wartime cookbook, but it calls for more sugar. 
Sugar was highly prized during the war, and people would actually save up their small ration for months so that they could use it for special occasions like Christmas. So I can understand why it calls for such little sugar compared to other recipes. Carrots were a natural solution for wartime desserts. Because they're naturally sweet, the amount of sugar could be reduced without hurting the final product too much. While Ohio pudding seems a fairly recent invention, carrot puddings go back much further than Fanny Farmer's recipe. I found a similar recipe from England dating to 1699. It uses more sugar than the wartime recipe, and it uses bread instead of potato. Cream and butter are used as binders. The use of bread instead of potatoes makes sense for this time period because while potatoes were introduced to England around 1590, they didn't gain in popularity until much later. I talk about the introduction of potatoes to Ireland in my episode about Colcannon, but the process of popularization of the potato in England was very similar. My next two recipes are much more straightforward than my Ohio pudding, although they are all very simple. The savory potato cakes call for eight ounces of mashed potato, eight ounces of cooked fish. I'm using tinned salmon because of its popularity during the war, one tablespoon of chopped parsley, one teaspoon of salt, and one quarter teaspoon of pepper. I just mix all of the ingredients together and then shape it into four cakes and bake it in a moderate oven until firm and brown. So I've added my parsley and salt to the potatoes. I'm gonna add my pepper. And now I just have to add my tinned salmon. Each tin of salmon that I have is five ounces. I need eight ounces. So I'm gonna open one can and see how that goes. See how much proportionally it goes with the potatoes and the salmon. But I may end up opening a second can. I'm opening a can of fish. Can you tell? Okay, I need to tie the kitty. Now that Snicket has her salmon, I'm gonna mix my salmon in with my potatoes, parsley, salt, and pepper. I think it can do with having a little more salmon, so I am gonna put most of the second can in. And what I don't use, I can always save for later, give some to Snicket. And if I divide this into four servings, four potato cakes, this is actually a pretty nice size serving. Without an egg for a binder, they're kind of falling apart a little. So I'm just, I'm going to put a little bit more pepper on each of these. And a nice sprinkle of salt. I already put salt and pepper in, but I, I have a feeling this might be a little bland. And I put the salmon cakes in the oven for, I'm guessing, 10 to 15 minutes, maybe, maybe 20. Um, I'll just keep an eye on them. The Ohio pudding is still in the oven, so I'm afraid that they might steam a little bit, so they might not get as brown, but oh well, we'll see. Two recipes down, now for the third. This one is so easy. Quarter cup of mashed potatoes, two tablespoons of sugar, and two tablespoons of cocoa powder, and just a touch of vanilla or almond. I'm using vanilla because it's what I have. My cocoa and sugar are going in with the quarter cup of potatoes, and I'm gonna mix those up nicely. I'm thinking I should have poured in my, my sugar and cocoa a little more slowly. Put in my vanilla, maybe that'll help. And the vanilla was made by my friend Lori, 
vanilla is super easy to make. It's just a matter of vanilla beans and vodka. And you put them together and you get vanilla. Add in a little time. It takes a little while for it. But this vanilla is lovely. It's almost syrupy. It's so thick. There we go. Yeah, that's looking nice. I just need to roll these out into balls. And it says in the recipe that I should roll these in chocolate vermicelli if I can get it. I had to look up what chocolate vermicelli was. Chocolate sprinkles. Just chocolate sprinkles. Making these about the size of maybe a little smaller than a ping pong ball. Walnut sized maybe. It looks like I'm going to get five of these. They are not fun to roll out. They just kind of stick to the hands. I'm hoping that they'll firm up a bit if I put them in the refrigerator. So I'm going to do that. And that's it. Two of my recipes are cooking and a third is complete and sitting in the fridge. Let's talk about why each of these recipes contain potato. But first, some background information. Prior to World War II, two-thirds of British food was imported. This included cereal crops from the U.S. and Canada, as well as other staple foods from mainland Europe. Since the U.K. couldn't compete with cheap cereal crops, they switched their efforts to produce livestock instead of the staples like wheat and rye. And then the war began. German blockades virtually stopped imports, although the U.S. was pretty successful getting into England, even with the blockades. But with limited imports, this meant that British farmers had to step up production by 50% in order to feed the nation. Livestock were the first to go. Raising livestock is not the most efficient use of land, since it takes far more calories to grow an animal for consumption than we get from it. As farmers killed their livestock to increase production of cereal crops, flax, and vegetables, meat became more scarce and subject to rationing. That, combined with the blockades, significantly limited the availability of meat, but also butter, cheese, and lard. These were among the first foods that were heavily rationed. This brings us to the Ministry of Food. The Ministry of Food was formed in 1939 to oversee rationing in the United Kingdom, and it was responsible for the biggest food distribution system in the world. The first Minister of Food, Lord Walton, was a prominent businessman and was appointed to the position by the Prime Minister of the time, Neville Chamberlain. He supervised 50,000 employees and over 1,000 local offices where people could obtain ration cards. His ministry had a virtual monopoly on all foods sold in Britain, whether imported or local. His mission was to guarantee adequate nutrition for everyone. With their rations, people could buy as much bread as they could afford and as many vegetables as they could get. But other foodstuffs were much more limited. Sugar was one of the first foods to be rationed. It was rationed by weight. Meat, on the other hand, was rationed by value. If you wanted expensive cuts, you could buy much less with your ration than if you were buying awful or less quality cuts such as shin meat. This was especially difficult for wartime Brits because meat consumption was at an all-time high before the war. By halfway through the war, the meat ration was halved. People living in cities and towns had a much harder time than people living in the country because the country folks could forage in the woods and had much more available land to make space for personal gardening on the periphery of grain crops. 
The blockade limited the import of fruit, so people living in the countryside would venture out into the woods to forage. Rose hips were collected to make rose hip syrup, which is high in vitamin C, and wild apples were collected and canned. The availability of fresh fish was also limited during the war, since fishermen were called to the Merchant Navy or Royal Navy. For the remaining fishermen, access to coastal fishing waters was limited, to say the least. Canned salmon from Canada and the U.S. became one of the few sources of fish available. That's why I chose canned salmon for my recipe. This was not the only canned protein shipped to the U.K. from the U.S. We also shipped over a certain potted meat food product called Spam. Spam was not particularly popular when it was introduced. Canned salmon flew off the shelves while Spam languished. In order to encourage the populace to purchase more Spam instead of salmon, the Ministry of Food increased the number of ration points for canned salmon while leaving the points for Spam the same. It took some time, but eventually the British public warmed to Spam and it gained popularity. Lord Bolton kept food prices down. Eggs and other items were subsidized, but weren't always readily available. He promoted recipes that worked well with the rationing system, such as those that I cooked for this episode. Since vegetables were unrationed, potatoes were used in the place of flour and fat, and carrots were used in the place of some fruits. Jams, jellies, and preserves were used to increase sweetness to compensate for limited sugar availability. The Ministry of Food even recommended using domestically produced rhubarb as a substitute for imported lemon because of its tartness. Domestic science teachers, dietitians, and institutional chefs were called upon to help develop a program of cookery, teaching, and nutrition education in the form of leaflets, books, posters, radio broadcasts, and demonstrations. The book that my potato cake came from is a collection of reproductions of official instructional booklets. The other two recipes came from a collection of recipes published by the Daily Telegraph. The Ohio pudding recipe was submitted by Mrs. Sergeant Stowe of Hamilton Cottage from Christchurch Hill in London. I'm going to check on my potato cakes. Oh, they still need a little time. Lord Walton's business skills made the Ministry of Food's difficult job a success, and he earned a strong personal popularity despite the shortages. This was partly because the rationing system was sold to the British public as being about fairness. Everyone, including the royal family, were on rations, so people were much more accepting about the shortages. For many people in the UK, their diet was far healthier during the war than ever before. The Ministry of Food took great efforts to ensure that everyone had enough food so that they would be fit to fight if called upon. Between the Great Depression and World War II, many people had sufficient calories to survive, but lacked essential vitamins and minerals, namely calcium ensuring that children and pregnant women had sufficient calcium under rationing helped to solve some of those dietary inadequacies. Rationing improved the health of everyone. Infant mortality declined and life expectancy rose if we discount the deaths caused by, you know, all the fighting. This was because it ensured that everyone had access to a varied diet with enough vitamins. 
The war ended in Europe on May 8, 1945, but rationing continued in order to feed people in European areas under British control, whose economies had been devastated by the fighting. Slowly, over the next few years, rationing tapered down, with bread taken off the ration in 1948, and sugar and confectioneries taken off ration in 1953. Meat and all other food rationing ended in 1954, nearly a decade after the war ended. Well, I think my potato cakes are almost done. My Ohio pudding is still cooking and my truffles are done. So I'm gonna go ahead and taste my salmon cakes and my truffles right now, rather than waiting. The question is, which comes first, the salmon cakes or the truffles? Hmm. My potato cakes did not brown at all, so I'm gonna cheat and put them in a frying pan. Now the downside to doing this is that I would have to use some of my very precious lard or butter ration in order to brown these in a frying pan. So really it is a catch-22. Do I eat them as is, or do I cook them a little bit more and get them brown? I'm gonna cook them a little bit more. And rather than using lard or butter like they would have used at the time, I just used a little bit of olive oil spray. They did brown up quite nicely, but they're falling apart so bad because they don't have any sort of binder. There's no egg in them to hold it together. And now for the tasting. I'm gonna try the salmon cake first. I have two of them that I've browned up nicely and the other two are still in the frying pan. Flavor-wise, they're surprisingly good. And they really didn't need the extra salt and pepper that I put on them. The only problem is that they are dry. They need some sort of sauce or something on them. Not that that would have been readily available during the war. But I'm actually surprised by this. I mean, they're almost like a latke that has salmon in it. I think had egg been readily available to wartime cooks, they, they would get like one egg per week. So... They weren't very available to wartime cooks. I think had they been able to add an egg to this, that would have helped to solve a lot of the, the binding problems and the falling apart problems, but also the dryness. I would have added just a little bit of moisture, a little bit of fat. I think overall this recipe is quite serviceable. A few tweaks, maybe some onion, and it would be quite good. As it is, it isn't terrible. It's mashed potatoes with salmon. Surprisingly nice. And now I'm gonna try the truffles. I'm a little nervous about this one. They didn't firm up at all. They're just kind of squishy. As I put it in my mouth, it has a very strong flavor of chocolate. It could probably do with a little less cocoa, if anything. But they're nicely sweet. Don't really taste the potato. They're moist and squishy. But as you put it in your mouth, it just kind of goes, Pugh just disintegrates. I would make these again, but I would add in some chopped nuts or dried fruit, and that would actually help to hold it together a little better so that it doesn't fall apart the second you put it in your mouth. It would also make them less squishy and give them a little texture, but also add a little flavor. The chocolate flavor is just so strong that it just kind of punches me in the mouth. But I think had some nuts or raisins been added to this, it would help to dampen down some of that rich chocolate flavor and make it almost more fudge-like. 
But yeah, these are surprisingly good and it made five. So for a family of five, each person could have a little touch of sweetness, which was something that would really be appreciated in wartime Britain. Well, that is it for now. I'm going to turn off the recorder and once my Ohio pudding is done, I'll turn it back on and it will do the tasting for that. Well, I just pulled the Ohio pudding out of the oven. I did have to top up the water a few times during the cooking. And depending on the size of your bain-marie, you might have to top it up a few more times. I was just using a large Pyrex baking dish, so I had limited water depth. And so I just pulled the Ohio pudding out of the oven. It is really quite interesting. It's my first steamed pudding that I've ever made. I've purchased them before. I've had them before. Whenever I was living in England, I've had them. So this is the first one I've ever made. So that was an adventure. I had a little bit of trouble getting it out of the bowl, but I worked the knife around the edges and then I kind of worked underneath it until it got loose. So it actually came out fairly well. And now for the taste. This is surprisingly good. There is an odd um, overcooked caramel taste to it, like almost a burnt caramel taste to it. I don't know where it's coming from. I ate a little bit of the outside thinking, well, maybe something caught on the outside, even though it doesn't look like it, but it wasn't that. And then I ate a little bit of the center. It's still there. So I don't know what's going on with that. Overall, it's quite good. The texture is a little odd. It's very gummy. It takes a lot of chewing to get it down, but also it sticks to your teeth a lot. Keeping with British wartime rations, I didn't make any sort of cream or anything to put on top of it. I think that would have actually helped quite a bit. But again, I've told you multiple times that I don't tend to eat a lot of dairy. So along with keeping with British wartime rations and me not eating dairy, I don't have cream to put on it. It's less sweet than carrot cake, but there's still a sweetness to it. I'm very curious to see how this compares to Fanny Farmer's recipe. I only made half the batch when I made this, and it made maybe five servings. Although I think having the batch, it was supposed to make maybe six servings the full thing. So this is supposed to be for three people. And maybe because it's getting late and I just worked out, but I don't think that I can make it through this whole piece. It's, it's good enough. It's quite yummy, but it's heavy. It's very dense, but at the same time, it has a good moistness to it. I think that's where the gumminess is coming from. But it just has like a really weird aftertaste to it. It's like animal feed, like alfalfa or something. Not that I've ever eaten alfalfa, but we used to raise rabbits and the alfalfa pellets, whenever we were scooping them, you'd kind of get that taste in your mouth as it, as the dust came up. It kind of almost has an alfalfa taste to it. Something that would improve this greatly is just a little bit of citrus. I think that would get rid of the alfalfa taste and it would lighten it up. But overall, good recipe. I, I'm interested in other versions of it. Considering that this is made from potatoes, carrots, flour, and some dried fruit, it's not bad. In, in fact, it's 
better than not bad. It's quite good. Those Hawa those Hawaiians, those Ohioans might be onto something. It does need some sort of cream to kind of balance it out and maybe a little citrus in it. I wonder what it would be like if it had been doused in a little bit of Grand Marnier. Well, that is a question for another time. I'm recording this a few days after making the Ohio pudding. Refrigerating it made it worse. The alfalfa flavor just got so strong, it was nearly unpalatable. The texture tightened up. The outside kind of almost got a rind to it. It was not good. After a few days in the refrigerator, it just was not good. I ended up throwing it away. I tend to not throw away food if I can avoid it, but it just was not a pleasant experience eating it. The potato cakes, one of them ended up in the garbage as well. They were just too dry. I made it through as many as I could. I was like, valiant effort, give a little bit of the salmon to snick it, and then threw the last one away. So these recipes, I could see why they'd be successful during war, but they just, they didn't have staying power. And now back to the podcast. Thank you for listening. I want to thank my friend Lori for the wonderful vanilla and my sister April for designing my logo. You can find us on Facebook at Eat at Lose the Podcast. And you can find my website at eatatlose.com where there'll be pictures from this episode and past episodes as well as some recipes. And until next time, have many great culinary adventures.